listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Corinthians 3, 1-9. Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Hey, before you read the next one, would you go ahead and put up the Matthew text so we can read along? All right, you get in it, go ahead. Okay. Our second reading comes from Matthew 5, 21 through 24. You have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thank you, Anna. I see most of your faces most weeks, and it can be very tempting when you go to worship services on a regular basis to be a quarter present or half present in the room, because many of you, if you've gone to worship on Sundays most of your life, you've probably heard about every sermon there is. I mean, there are probably only like 19 sermons in existence. We just keep hearing them again and again. I would like to ask you to be present now and listen, to pay attention to the scriptures. I was meditating on this passage. I I had this great gift of not preaching for two whole weeks. It was amazing. I recommend it. I really do. Uh, Take two weeks off. And uh, I was meditating on this passage, and I was really struck, both 1 Corinthians 3 and Matthew 5, by the optimism and the ambition of each of the speakers in the text. In, in, In Matthew 5, it's Jesus. And Jesus is so optimistic about human nature, he says, not only do not murder, he takes it to its logical conclusion and says, I don't want you to be angry And the crazy thing is about the way that Jesus said it is he says it almost as if he believes it's possible for us to obey that. That is some serious optimism. 
And then in Paul here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he reflects an ambition to be more than mere human. Three times in this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he uses this word mere. He says, I have to address you as mere infants in Christ. And then two other times I have to address you, are you not being mere humans? And he holds this in contrast to one who is living by the Spirit, who's no longer worldly, who's able to handle solid foods, figuratively speaking, who's mature. And like Jesus, he has this ambition, this optimism, as if he believes it's possible to supersede being a mere human. Now, it's a bit lazy, though we all say it. It's a bit unreflective to say things like, well, look, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. And I understand why we say such things, because we all know our inability to be perfect. But Jesus literally summarizes the Sermon on the Mount, the first part of it in Matthew 5.48, by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which makes sense, the question, I mean, do we have to be perfect? Must we be without flaw in order to be loved or accepted by God? Of course not. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But as the scriptures indicate in Matthew 5, in the whole Sermon on the Mount, and in 1 Corinthians 3, does God desire for us to grow into maturity? Is his ambition, his desire for you to tap into all of the resources of the kingdom of God? Yes, of course it is. He wants us to be like trees planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. He wants us to be people who count ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ who are overflowing with peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. He wants us to avail ourselves of every resource we've been given in the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Even so, do not be angry with your brother. Is that even possible? Come on. <laughs> uh, I got peed on on an airplane this week by a person that I was not related to. <laughs> and then after that happened, Emily and I took a walk yesterday, and our dog peed on my shoe. <laughs> Do not be angry. Come on. We may like the optimism, we may respect the ambition, the idea of this is inspiring, but are Jesus and Paul living on the same planet that you and I are living on? The whole thing feels a little bit like, like sitting down and being handed an instrument that you don't play, like a cello, and someone says, okay, right now, play box cello concerto in G major, do it. Well, I, I don't know how to do that. Not only do most of us not know the melody, we don't know how to manipulate a bow. We don't know what's going on with our left hand. We haven't learned the basics of technique or theory. We may not even have that much of an ear for tone. And the task, play box cello concerto in G major, is so beyond our capacities, the suggestion alone feels laughable. And I can imagine, and this is true for me at times as well, 
that as we read a scripture like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 on being more than mere human, or we read basically anything that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that it feels a bit like being handed an instrument that you don't know how to play and say, play at expert level. We're being saddled with expectations of expertise and human flourishing when we don't know the basics of how to do it. We know what we should do sometimes. We know the kind of self-control we would practice if we truly had self-mastery, but not only do we find we cannot do it, we actually don't know anyone who can, and we know few people who even seem to be making much progress. Now, none of us want for Christian theorists. We all know people. Many of you have, been, have done more Bible studies than is probably like medically permissible. We don't want for Christian theorists, people knowledgeable about what the Bible says on various topics, who could, you know, list all 66 books of the Bible and even impress you by listing the extra ones the Catholic Church has. They could say a bit about genre and teach on prayer and recite some Bible verses from memory. But when it comes to Christian practitioners, people who Jesus said are like the wise man building his house upon a firm foundation, people who keep their anger and their lust in check, Matthew 5, people who cultivate a rich secret life, Matthew 6, people who resist worry and rejoice always, People who share generously and bless their enemies and let their yes be yes and their no be no. All of those things that represent graduating from mere humanity as Paul penalized the Corinthians. There are few true Christian practitioners to be found. I've probably mentioned it a dozen times. You've heard the saying that there are people who claim to have 30 years of experience, but in reality they have only one year of experience 30 times over. And when it comes to our life in Christ, many of us have followed Jesus for decades, but we are not decades deep in Christian maturity. Why is this the case? Why is it after 37 years or so of walking with Jesus and studying the scriptures that I find myself looking at this accusation of Paul against the Corinthians being merely human, and I'm still like, well, yeah. Or I read Jesus' words, not only do not murder, but do not be angry, and I scoff, thinking, is this even possible? As I've meditated on this passage, these passages the last couple of weeks, I've asked myself the, the rhetorical, well, not just rhetorical question, but the good question, what holds me up from living into life, the fullness of life in the kingdom of God? And what holds you up? Basically, every Christian we know from living into the maturity in Christ that the New Testaments compel us to pursue. I, I thought about three things. I could name probably three others on a different day. The first thing that I've identified for me, and I think for many of us, that holds me up in, in moving toward greater Christian maturity, the first is a lack of devotion to training a lack of devotion to training. Now, in fairness, when many of us heard the gospel for the first time, we had no idea that was part of the equation. And for many of you, when you've even shared the gospel with people, you had no idea that training, formation over the long haul was part of the whole package. 
You know the Great Commission? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And most of us stop there. Not knowing the end of it is saying, oh, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you to the very ends of the earth. How different would the American landscape be if 50 years ago when Billy Graham started making his way across the country with these crusades, if there was another one that followed, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded? Many of us have, been, have received a story of Christianity and the gospel that ends at justification and budgets little or not at all for sanctification. We didn't even know that training was a part of it. It's like the person who decides to run a marathon and they cross the starting line and rejoice that they've done it. And watching everyone move ahead. So many of us have had a Christianity like this, characterized by a lack of devotion to training. Many of us have understood that discipleship, following Jesus, learning a Sermon on the Mount kind of Christianity was an optional extra for the super elite competitive Christian who really wants to score extra points. Or even if we did know that training and formation was meant to be part of it, there are so many other things going on in life where like the seed that lands among the thorns and it says the, desi the, de the desires of this life, the worries of this life and the desire for other things or in another gospel it says the deceitfulness of wealth choked out our ability to respond to the word. Even if we did know there was meant to be more to life of following Jesus, learning to obey all the things that he commanded, the, the desires this life, the worry about other things choked out our ability to respond. Many of us don't make progress in our life with Jesus because maybe we never knew that we had to train, that there was more to this journey than crossing the starting line. Or many of us lack devotion to the training itself. But Paul in the epistles commends the disciples, the followers of Jesus, that we ought to have the discipline of an athlete. We ought to have the patience of a farmer, and we ought to have the obedience of a soldier to his commanding officer. But many of us lack devotion in training. But I think the, the, the greater issue, the greater failure of discipleship within the American church that many of us have inherited, the second thing is a lack of a clear training pathway. So even for that person who says, like, yes, I'm signed up for, for anything that Jesus has. I want to learn to obey everything that he commanded. Just someone tell me how to get started. We fail for a lack of a clear training pathway. This, I think, is one of the biggest problems among followers of Jesus and one of the greatest failures of the church. And I say that with full self-awareness that I am a pastor of a church and we have things to learn. We have little idea how to progress if we wanted to. Andy Crouch, who is one of my favorite authors, who also happens to be a classically trained pianist, said, choose the smallest thing you cannot do. Find its trouble and slowly work it out. This is true of any endeavor in which you want to advance into a greater level of mastery. Choose the smallest thing you cannot do. Find its trouble and slowly work it out. Once you've done it well, do not hurry on. Do it again just that way at just that pace. And once you can do it just that way 10 times in a row, then once again, 
Choose the smallest thing you cannot do. When I was taking piano lessons from Sandy Pierce on 90th Street, a couple doors down from my parents, in West Tulsa, I was, I was a little kid, and she taught me the basics. I had the flashcards of learning all of the notes of the bass clef and the treble clef, and I had to learn the fingering of, of you know, how to do major and minor scales and my arpeggios, my variations on the major chords, and then you start with, like, the basics of Mary Had a Little Lamb and other such inspiring songs that some of your children are probably learning. You get a little more advanced, you add the left hand to the equation, twinkle, twinkle, little star, gets a little bit more mature in its sound. And it was bit by bit that she would, Sandy would, would star. I want you, once I'd learned some notes and learned the basics of how to move my hands along the keyboard, she would star. I want you to practice just these three measures of the song. She's teaching me to choose the smallest thing I cannot do and, and don't move on until I've mastered it, a measure at a time, a scale at a time, 30 minutes or so a day. I, I did that generally, Mom, didn't I? We never fought about that. I'm curious, where are we given similar pathways to Christian maturity? Where we begin with the smallest things that we cannot do and we're trained to build from there. Where, where is anyone coaching us the basics on how to start and how to continue and how to finish? We've all taken uh, courses. We've, we've read books. There are videos that we could consume on any number of topics. But when and where are we given the kind of instruction with appropriate sequencing and skill acquisition and milestones such that we could feel that we're actually making progress toward maturity in our Christian practice? What are the equivalents of our scales and our arpeggios? As we think about Jesus' instructions on the Sermon on the Mount, we see how Jesus took the commands of the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and he reversed engineered them down to their most basic components. Now, I built this to be too small for the eyes of the people in the back. Just take my word that it's brilliant, okay? Jesus begins with this, this occasion in Matthew 5 of being wronged. And he says it could lead to murder. When you are angry, Charlie, your friends at the back, sorry that you can't read this, said that anger ultimately is going to make its way toward murder. It starts with being wronged. Then it leads to me being angry and stewing on my feelings, and letting my anger build and multiply, and then taking fault with you for angering me and thinking you're not worth respect, you're worthless, you don't deserve to live, you deserve to die, and I'm going to be the one who makes it happen. Jesus says, I tell you, do not be angry. It's a slippery slope. In in Corinthian terms, Paul would describe this as being a mere human. This is the course that everyone goes on. And yet in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Do not resist an evil person, but love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How do we take steps toward those kind of ends? It begins with us being angry what do we do with our anger? I learn to take my anger to my master. I explore the roots of my anger. Anger is almost always a secondary emotion. It's telling us something else that's going on on the inside of us. 
I ask the Lord, what can I learn about myself? I ask for healing. I ask for help. I release the person who has angered me to the Lord. I strive to forgive them. I seek reconciliation. In the course of time, I can be the kind of person who's capable of blessing and praying for my enemies. Jesus reverse-engineered the commands of God to take it to its seed form, the seed form of our sinful behaviors in the human heart. And this is precisely the kind of training pathways we need. Not merely, by the way, that's life in the Spirit, not merely getting all the way through the Bible, like, great, I read through the Bible in the year, not merely getting all the way through the Word, but getting the Word all the way through us. Again, were we to liken how most of us try to grow in Christ to learning an instrument, it's like we begin by taking a course on Mozart. Or we learn a minor, minor scale there, and we continue hopping around from musical topic to topic, finding that we're little closer to reproducing any of the great works that we've come to know and love, still far from composing our own beautiful music than when we started. We lack a clear training pathway. And I think a final example of why many of us fail to make progress in our life with Jesus, what holds us up, is we have few examples of people who've actually been practitioners of the way of Jesus. One of the most striking and, and at times to me troubling things that Paul ever said was, follow me as I follow Christ. Saying, imitate, he says this numerous times in his, his letters, imitate me. Or anything good that you've seen in me, tell other faithful people about it and, and learn to live according to my rhythms of life too. How many people do you know whose rhythm of life, if you adapted it, would lead you toward greater Christian maturity? I hope that you were here last week when Bishop Todd Hunter came. I've described Bishop Todd as numerous times as like the most brilliant person I've ever met who's also the most joyful and the most Christ-like person I've ever met. I love Todd. And a Saturday night before he preached here Sunday morning, we had our, our board and our staff over to our house, and we crammed people like sardines into what we pretentiously call our reading room. And numerous of us were sitting on the ground. I'm sitting at Todd's feet on the hardwood floor. Emily's right beside me. And I asked Todd this question. Todd, you know, it, it's hard at times to be a professional Christian where our livelihood comes from the church. And it can be difficult at times to distinguish between having one's own life with God that's separate from the life of the church. How do you resist the dangers of professionalizing your Christianity? And I will butcher how Todd said it, but he, he began to explain to us how he attempts to be an actual apprentice of Jesus in real time in his life. He talked about from, from the moment he wakes up in the morning and his feet hit the floor, he begins to think to himself like, all right, Lord, how am I feeling in this moment? Conscious of the presence of the Lord as, as the day begins. He spends, not all of us are able to do this, but he spends the first hour, hour and a half of his day writing, journaling, reflecting. He gets in the car and, and is listening to Pray As You Go, which is a great Catholic prayer app that I recommend to you as he's making his way to the gym. As he's in the pool and he's swimming and he comes to the end of his lane, there is on the ground a little like cross. And he's, Lord, may I be, he, he uses the word Christoformity. 
May, I be, may Christ be formed in me. May I take up the way of the cross. He's literally swimming and gasping for breath and praying, Lord, may the cross of Jesus Christ shape me. May the way of Jesus guide me. As he gets in the car, he's listening to worship music. He prays with the staff at the beginning of the day and literally going into each meeting, Lord Jesus, would you make yourself known to me? Help me to be a, a presence, an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Help me to be a generative, fruitful, non-anxious presence to these people. And he described how quite literally in the present tense in his, his days, he's bringing himself before the Lord and asking for God's help. This is far beyond a vision of having a quiet time. It's, it's being present to Jesus in the present. Uh, Blaise Pascal in his Pensees, he impressed? <laughs> he said, let each of us examine his thoughts. He's writing about how difficult it is to be present to the present. Let each of us examine his thoughts. He will find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it's only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means, but the future alone our end. Thus, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we're always planning how to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so. We're rarely here now. But it's precisely here now that we're invited to be present to Jesus who is present to us. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspir Conspiracy said, we discover the effectiveness of God's rule with us precisely in the details of our day-to-day -day existence. I want you to note he's not saying we discover the effectiveness of God's rule if, like the saints of old, we start our day with a three-hour Bible study and prayer session. He says it's we discover the truth of all of this in the details of our day-to-day -day existence. Frank Laubach wrote of how in his personal experiment of moment-by-moment -moment submission to the will of God, the fine texture of his work and life experience was transformed. In January of 1930, he began to cultivate the habit of turning his mind to Christ for one second out of every minute. After only four weeks, he reported, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God and little things is what so astonishes me for I never have felt it this way before. I need something and turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. Being present to Jesus in the present. <clears throat> this is a place that we can start. This is the smallest thing that we cannot do. And it's a posture from which we must never graduate. Were I to commend to you a place to start in developing toward Christian maturity, disciplining your mind and your heart a little bit at a time, the smallest thing we cannot do, to being present to Jesus in the present. 
it may well be that the only thing you do in the next year, the only thing you do in the next year is aspire to be conscious of the Lord Jesus at the moment of your waking. You may live like a hellion the rest of the day. But it may well be the smallest thing we cannot do is to begin our day making ourselves present to Jesus who is present to us. Inviting his rule and his reign in our lives, the provision of his spirit here and now. And this is so much more than just having a quiet time. A quiet time says, these five minutes are yours, but the remaining 1,435 are mine. The smallest thing we cannot do to be present to Jesus who's present to us in this present moment. The good news of all of this is that the work is not entirely on our shoulders, that ours is a personal God, made known most intimately in the person of Jesus Christ, who longs to be present to us. At the end of that great commission, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you in the middle of this work until the very end of the age. May we in these moments together be present to Jesus who is present to us, and may we be conscious and come with faith as we come to the table conscious that Jesus wants to be uniquely present to us in these moments, which is why the church held the table with such esteem and reverence. There were miracles among them, Paul reports in 1 Corinthians. As people were healed, people were delivered, and even people brought judgment on themselves for not appreciating the one who is present with us at the table. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.